0: Welcome to Element Church. My name is Adam Young. I'm the lead pastor here. Man, just to start off, I, I hope that every Sunday morning, but especially this morning, I hope you, you walked in today with an expectation, and that expectation was to meet uh, with the Lord, uh, that you walked in with an expectation to be in his presence, um, to have the opportunity for him to speak to you and for you to express uh, what's on your heart to him, because that's, that's exactly what we're doing. Um, God's presence is here, and this is an opportunity to meet with our Creator um, in a very special way. And so, not just this Sunday, but certainly particularly this Sunday, I hope you showed up with an ex, uh, a heart of expectation uh, to meet with with God. Uh, again, I want to welcome you to church. Um, this is a great week to be here for a lot of reasons, and one of which is because this is the first week uh, in a new series that we're starting called uh, Petitions and Purpose. Now, uh, you know... Sometimes people will talk about uh, famous last words or just the importance of last words. We've talked about it here. We've used it as a great analogy um, to uh, think about the importance of if you just had uh, a one last moment to live. If you, if you could know, we don't always know. Uh, some of you would like to. Some of you hope you don't know when your time is coming. But if you had the opportunity to choose your words carefully, um, to, to share some final thoughts in your final moments... Whatever you say would be of significance, right? It would represent what really matters to you. We've used that analogy to examine the final words of Jesus when he was uh, on the cross, just the final words that he spoke. Um, But if you knew that your time was up and you had the opportunity to gather with your family members and hold hands and pray, I imagine your prayer would be particularly laser-focused, Not that, you know, your dream of a job promotion or, you know, um, your hope that uh, your garden does well in the spring or whatever the things that you care about, which are good. I'm guessing those aren't the kind of things you would pray about. If you knew you had one prayer left, if you knew this is my last opportunity to pray with those I love and cherish, you would pray for some very specific things and your prayer might look a little bit different than just your everyday average prayer. It probably wouldn't be just a kind of throw it away. I'm doing this because I have to. Thank you for our food. Thank you for the beautiful weather. Help me get good sleep. Whatever it is, it would be intentional. And so what we're doing in this series uh, is we're jumping back into the Gospel of John. If you have been a part of Element Church for a while... Um, you know that we have spent a long time uh, in the Gospel of John. Now, we've taken a lot of breaks, which is why it's taken us forever to actually get through the thing, uh, because we've taken a lot of breaks. But we're jumping back in it. Good news is we're going to jump back in it, and uh, we are on the final stretch. We're about to close out and finish out uh, the Gospel of John. We'll finish it out this spring. And so we're going to be in John chapter 17 for a few weeks, looking at Jesus' final, longest prayer, In the Bible. Now, it's not technically his final prayer. Uh, He does pray in the Garden of Gethsemane, which is just... I mean, where he prays right before he's arrested, but we're only given about a sentence or two of what he actually prays. He, he makes a few statements uh, as a prayer from the cross, but again, they're just like one sentence, maybe two. John chapter 17 is one long prayer, and it actually happens to be the longest recorded prayer in all of the Bible. And it's Jesus praying just hours before he will be betrayed, arrested he, he will go on trial and then he will be executed. So this prayer is probably less than 12 hours uh, before his execution begins. And he knows it's coming. He, he has been preparing himself and his followers for this inevitable moment. And so John chapter 13 actually begins his last night on earth. Uh, at least before the crucifixion. His final night on earth begins in John chapter 13. We have already gone through most of that. Uh, And now this is kind of the conclusion. He has been in this room with his disciples. They've um, shared uh, dinner together. Jesus has washed his disciples' feet in a sign of loving humility and service to his disciples, something that they had to condition their heart to be ready to accept. And then he begins teaching them. They ask him some questions, as anyone would if you thought maybe this was your last chance to be with this guy who you had given up everything to follow. And so they ask him some questions. He has some answers for them. And then he's going to conclude their time together with this prayer. This is his longest recorded prayer And his final prayer that we have of any substance. Now, if you could, if choose anyone to pray for you, um, I wonder who you would choose. Now, there are some typical answers that most of us probably would have given, you know, people like Mother Teresa or Billy Graham both of whom are no longer here. And so maybe you would choose the Pope, or maybe there's some, um, somebody you know in your life who um, you, you would be honored if they would pray for you. If you, could, if you had some great need that you could present to them and say, would you pray for me about this? And I don't know if you realize it or not, but Jesus prayed for you. I want you to look at with me at John chapter 17. We're going to look at verse 20. Now, we're not really focused on this verse today. Uh, We'll get there in a few weeks, but this is a part of his prayer. And Jesus says this, I do not ask for these only these being his disciples, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. I don't know if you've ever realized it, if anyone's ever told you, or if you ever put the pieces of the puzzle together from John chapter 17, but Jesus specifically prayed for you before he went to the cross. Before his execution came, he took a minute to stop and to pray for you. And so what we're going to do over these next several weeks is we're going to stop and look, what is it that Jesus prayed for? Specifically, what did Jesus pray for you about? And so we're going to look at the specific petitions or the explicit requests that Jesus makes in this prayer for you and I. Now, this first week, it's not an explicit request for you and I. But what we're going to do is we're going to look at how Jesus starts his prayer. We're going to look at a few important things that he says that should inform us about how we pray. So maybe you walk in here today going, you know... I don't really know how to pray. Or I probably should pray more. Or I, I know prayer is supposed to be important and I should do it more often, but I don't really know what to say or how to approach prayer other than the few examples I've seen. I've bowed my head and listen as someone else prays at a church or before a baseball game when well, I guess they don't do that anymore. They used to do that kind of stuff. But um, like you, you're like, I, I've listened to people pray, and I've said a few, you know, God, get me out of this situation, or thank you for this food. But I don't really know what to pray. So we're going to look as Jesus begins his prayer and allow it to speak and inform us and in how we pray. And then as the series goes on, we're going to look specifically at what it was that Jesus prayed for you. And so if you will, I want you to join with me in John chapter 17. Now, if you have your Bibles, great, open them up. If you're using one of ours, great, use one that's in uh, one of the seats. If you don't own a Bible or you don't like the one you do own, feel free to take the one in the seat uh, home as our gift to you. Um, But probably what most people are doing in this room is they're opening up their phones or their tablets and they're opening up the Bible app. And uh, if you'll click live events, Element Church will be the first thing that pops up. If you'll click Element Church, uh, the scriptures we're going to read today, as well as the announcements we're going to make at the end of service today, are already laid out for you, and you can follow along with us there. So John chapter 17, let's start in verse 1. When Jesus had spoken these words, so this is just referring back to what he said from chapters 13 through 16. When he had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you. Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Now there's just a few things I want us to take a minute to stop and look at uh, in this. And allow it to speak to us to maybe encourage us in how we pray and, and approach God. But maybe also challenge us and some assumptions that we have about our relationship with God. And the first thing that I want to point out that may not strike you as unusual, but it would had you lived in the first century, is how Jesus begins his prayer by saying, Father. Now, here's what's interesting. Jesus is going to say, Father, six times in this prayer. And there's a seventh place where it's implied. And it just so happens that he also makes seven petitions in this prayer. And before he makes every petition, he introduces it with this phrase. And at least one time it's implied. Six times he addresses God as Father. And here's what also is interesting. In every single prayer recorded in the Gospel of John, in which Jesus prays to God, he begins every single prayer by saying, Father. Every single prayer. And how did Jesus teach you and I and his disciples to pray? Our Father. Now, here's why this is significant and it's easy for us to miss because in the 21st century, many of us are accustomed, or at least we're, it's not that unfamiliar, to call God Father, to pray in that way, to use that as a title in our prayers, but in the first century, Jesus is living in a culture in which um, Jewish tradition had grown to a point where they believed that most of the time when, when God would interact with the world, he only did so through angels, that he only spoke to people through angels, that he delivered his messages through angels. Now, that's not explicitly taught in Scripture in the Old Testament, but that was the tradition that had arisen, that God only deals... With his creation through angels, because there's this great separation because of God's holiness from himself to his creation. It was a culture and a time in which Jewish people had ceased to use God's name out of fear of taking it in vain. And we've heard that, you know, in the Ten Commandments, one of the big ten is to not use or take the Lord's name in vain out of sheer, part of it was respect, and part of it was fear, to not take God's name in vain, they ceased to even use God's name. and God became very distant. God was someone that you worked hard to please. You worked hard not to anger. And you tried to stay in line in hopes that God would do good things for you and your family and your people. And Jesus shows up on the scene and begins calling God Father. So much so that we've even seen in the Gospel of John that just Jesus calling God Father angered some of the crowds so much that they wanted to kill him for it, for placing himself on such an l- intimate level with his Father in heaven, with our Creator, And if anything, in this moment, Jesus and and the way he begins this prayer should be teaching us about the intimacy we have with our creator. That there is this great distance between us and God in heaven because of his holiness, but it's through love that he makes himself available to us. Now, most of us know that in theory. Most of us probably know that we're allowed to call God Father and wouldn't create an outrage or an uproar. But I bet if some of us were to honestly examine our prayers, they don't sound like prayers that are built on intimacy. Maybe they sound like prayers that are built off fear as though we're just trying to please God so he'll stay off our back or he won't punish us or strike us down with a lightning bolt or he'll give us the rays that we're hoping he'll secretly give us. And maybe if we were to really honestly examine our prayers, they're more like prayers built off fear than intimacy. And all throughout the Gospel of John, as Jesus is carrying out his ministry and his mission, and even in his final moments, His heart towards God is one of intimacy. It's one that he felt, it's one that he modeled, and it's one that he taught us to follow through as well. The other thing that I want to point out here, if you'll look back at John chapter 17, back in verse 1, when Jesus begins his prayer, Father, the hour has come. Now here's why this is significant. Seven times in the gospel of John, Jesus has said, my hour has not yet come. In John chapter two, in verse four, his very first recorded miracle in the gospel of John, when he turns water into wine, his, his mom comes up and he says, hey, we're at this wedding. It's a great party, but we've run out of wine. And Jesus's response, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Now, why why would he say that? My hour has not yet come. Because then he's going to go on and he's going to to create wine for the party anyways. Because Jesus is trying to teach those around him and specifically his disciples, because his disciples, this is the first miracle they will ever see. And, And John even tells us this is where their belief in who he is and that he is something more than meets the eye begins is in this moment, but Jesus wants to make sure that everyone understands, I did not come up here to be your entertainer or your magician. I didn't show up to impress you with tricks or to do miracles. That's not my greater purpose. I'll take care of the wine, but you need to know my hour has not yet come. He says it seven other times. We'll look at just one more. John chapter 8, verse 20 These words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, but no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. We see throughout the ministry of Jesus that tensions are building. The more he teaches, the more people, some people love him, the more some people hate him the more that he begins to challenge the crowd and their their assumptions about who God is and who they are and what God wants for his creation and what God's plan is for the world, the more he teaches, the more he does, the more it becomes polarizing for those who are watching and following. For some, it stirs something in their heart they know is right, and their faith grows and their commitment grows. And for others, Jesus begins to challenge certain assumptions they have in life. He begins to challenge things that they're chasing after. And it's a threat to their authority. It's a threat to their position. It's a threat to their way of life. And they hate him for it. And eventually it will lead them to want to and to carry out a desire to execute him. But in John 8, we're told, even though the tensions are rising and they want to take him by force, It's not going to happen because his hour has not yet come. And Jesus opens up this prayer with, Father, the hour has come. Now, one part of that is significant because it highlights why Jesus came, his ultimate purpose. I think there were a lot of kind of sub-purposes while he came what he came to accomplish, but the ultimate purpose was this hour. It was the hour he had just entered into. The climax of all of his life and ministry, all of his teaching, all of his deeds, all of it was a climax to this moment. We don't see it as much in the Gospel of John, but if you read through the Gospel of Luke, the entire story is built on this crescendo leading up to Jesus entering into Jerusalem. And we see it in the Gospel of John too, Over and over, and especially in Luke, Jesus tells his disciples, we have to go to Jerusalem because there I'm going to be betrayed and I'm going to be killed. To the point where his disciples even try to talk him out of going to Jerusalem. Like, Jesus, this is a bad idea. If you know what's waiting for you in Jerusalem, why would you walk into it? Jesus must walk into it because this is the reason he came. He says, my hour, the hour... Has arrived. All that my life and my ministry has been building up to is now. But I think there's one more thing that's significant in his stating that the hour has come, especially as it relates to how you and I pray. Notice, knowing what was coming, knowing that it was inevitable. And knowing that it was a part of God's sovereign plan did not lead Jesus to fatalism. It didn't lead Jesus to this position of, well, it's going to happen. What can I do about it? Sometimes I think maybe that's why you and I don't pray as much as we should. This attitude of what's the point? It's going to happen anyways. What's the point? I can't stop it. Maybe even to the point of saying, what, what good is it going to do? This is what God wants for me. This is where God has led me. And knowing that this was the climax of his mission on earth, knowing that this is why he had come, that the hour had come, that he had reached his ultimate destiny and his mission on earth, it didn't lead Jesus to say, what's the point? Instead, knowing his hour had come led him to prayer. And unfortunately, sometimes I think in our lives, it does the opposite. When we feel helpless, when we feel like we don't have control. Sometimes it makes us throw our hands up in the air. And for Jesus, it was the opposite. He knew what was happening. He knew what was coming. And yet it led him to prayer. Another thing, the probably the biggest part of this little section that we've read so far. And the first petition Jesus makes in this prayer says, Father, the hour has come glorify your son, that the son may glorify you. Glorify your son, that the son may glorify you. Now, several weeks ago, um, Three or four weeks ago, we, we kind of covered the mission of Element Church, our mission and vision, what it is that we're trying to accomplish, why we exist. Uh, our mission statement here at Element Church is, we exist to glorify God through whole lives transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, I'm not going to re-preach that whole message I preached a couple weeks ago, but we spent a lot of time talking about if God's ultimate goal is to bring himself glory, to make his name great, then our ultimate goal, our greatest purpose is to bring him glory, to make his name great. And we read and looked at a number of scriptures in which God works to bring himself glory, in which he glorifies the Son, the Son glorifies the Father, they both glorify the Spirit, the Holy Spirit glorifies the Father Son. We we looked at a lot of those, but here you see it at work again. Jesus says, Father, glorify your son so that your son can glorify you. And here's what's interesting. So so the the setup here is the Father gives and the Son gives. The Father gives, so the Son gives. Now look at the next phrase the next little bit in this prayer. Glorify your son, that the son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. The pattern continues. The father gives, so the son gives. And then here again, the pattern continues. The father gives, so the son gives. And then this time, it's the son giving eternal life. One more thing I want to point out. Verse 2, since you have given him the authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. Verse 3, and this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Now, if we were going to have a pop quiz, the answer was just given to you but how would you define eternal life? Like I said, the answer was just given. This is like a freebie if we were taking a test. But I'm going to guess most of us before reading this, when we walked in this morning, if you had been given that test, which thankfully we don't do that at church here, uh, but if you'd been given a test when you walked in, you said, what is eternal life? Most of us would say something like spending, uh, living in heaven after I die. That's eternal life. Being in heaven for all of eternity after I die here on earth. But how does Jesus define eternal life? Is that how he defines it? And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. You know, we talked earlier about how Jesus and his life and his teaching was very polarizing. That certainly hasn't changed in 2,000 years. But even when he was alive and then shortly after his death, everything about Jesus was polarizing. The way he taught, the things he taught, the way he lived his life, all of it caused division. For some, it awakened something in their heart, in their mind that drew them in. For others... It was such a threat to who they were and their lifestyle or their assumptions about our world or their positions of power and authority. It was such a threat to what they had that they pushed Jesus away, that they rejected him. There was a guy who was born Saul of Tarsus, who went by another name that most of us know him by, Paul. Paul was a man who was polarized in the wrong direction when it came to Jesus. Jesus was a threat to everything he had built his life on. Paul had devoted his life to the Jewish scriptures, what we now call the Old Testament, to growing and to building God's kingdom by by protecting God's people, the Israelites, what we would now refer to as the Jews. Paul was a Jew of Jews. He was the elite of the elite. And his mission on earth was, was to protect the boundaries that separated what it meant to be a Jew versus what it meant to not be a Jew, which is usually referred to in the Bible as a Gentile, anyone who wasn't a part of the in group. And his life mission was to build the walls as high as he could to protect who was in and to keep out those who were supposed to be out. Jesus was a threat to that. Because all of a sudden, people started teaching Jesus, started sharing Jesus' message, started living like Jesus, and all of a sudden, the walls of what it means to be God's people started crumbling down, and people that weren't in, traditionally supposed to get in, started getting in. And it angered Paul so much that he started arresting people who called themselves followers of Jesus. He started assisting in their execution, because they were a threat to what he had built his life on protecting And one day he met Jesus face to face and it changed everything. And he went from building walls to keep people out to doing everything he could to tear walls down to let as many people as possible in. Paul was an elite when it came to what his culture and society looked for. On an education level, he would have had what would be equal to a Ph.D. today. He studied under under the most well-known and respected rabbi in all of Jerusalem. Not only was he a Jew, he was a Roman citizen, and that was rare. He had every right and privilege you could want in life, and he had the respect of most people. He was a Pharisee, which meant he was not only socially elite, he was religiously elite. And he was probably economically somewhat elite too, because his father had the ability to purchase a Roman citizenship. And in Philippians 3, Paul reflects on his former way of life, all these things that he had that were desirable socially and elite. And and in talking about people that were on his nerves in Philippians three, all these people who were bragging about how great they were and basically how impressed God should be with with them. And and basically to counter their arrogance, this is what he says, starting in verse four. He says, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh, as opposed to these other people. Also, if anyone else thinks he has reasons for confidence in the flesh, I have more circumcised on the eighth day, which means he came from a very devout Jewish religious family. Of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, he's acknowledging that he had everything everyone else wanted. As to the law, a Pharisee. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. No one had more passion for the Jewish people than Paul. As to righteousness under the law, blameless. That's a bold statement. The power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Paul gets eternal life. He gets it. He says, I'll count everything I worked my life for as worthless, as rubbish, as a loss in comparison to knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. At the opportunity to know him, to no longer depend on my own religious efforts and hard work for righteousness, but I'll count on the righteousness that Christ will give to me through faith. I'll put all my trust Not in myself, not in my own ability, not in my background and what family I come from and all the status symbols I have achieved. I will put all of my worth in Christ. Not in my ability, in my own ability to earn righteousness, but in Jesus' ability to give me a righteousness that I could never earn. Jesus says, this is eternal life that they know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Paul says, I count it all as worthless compared to knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead as Jesus comes to this final prayer and he's making these final petitions he highlights the purpose for coming my hour has come this moment this moment when i, I that i have arrived to is why i came to die i came to die so that i could rise so that I could gather all who believe in me. This is why I came. And I came to give eternal life. But do not mistake eternal life for simply a new destination. Eternal life is a new reality. It means that we understand and relate to Jesus and and to our creator in a whole new world. Jesus says, I didn't come to this hour to give you a new address. Later on, I came so that you could know me, so that you could know your creator. Paul says, I will count everything that I worked for as lost if it means that I can know Jesus. That's eternal life. Sometimes we treat God as though just some sort of genie that if we plug in the right formula, he'll spit out the right blessing. Some of us have been misled that if we will just say a few certain words that we get to go to heaven when we die and that's the end. Like, I'm just looking to avoid hell. That sounds bad. Heaven sounds better. I'll I'll, I'll just play with this formula so I can get heaven. And Jesus says, no, no, no. I didn't come for that. That's a byproduct of what it means to know me. To redefine who you are by being connected to me. I came to give you eternal life. And that eternal life is knowing me. And that changes how we pray. Because we don't pray just to get something. A new location, an eternity, a few blessings here and there, the avoidance of some bad circumstances. We pray to get, and because we have, a relationship. A relationship with our creator. Will you pray with me? Lord Jesus, we come to you this morning, and I thank you that we have the opportunity just to come in prayer to you. That in a very real and intimate sense, we come to connect with you. And Jesus, I pray that you would challenge each of us in this moment that what we would seek after is not just a reserved seat in heaven. That we would seek after knowing you. Being identified with you, with your death and your resurrection. so that we can be done with our old life. And in you, we can have new life, abundant life, eternal life. And our heart's desire in this moment is to connect with you. Father, we cry out to you, not as some distant God who is unapproachable, but because what of Jesus has done, we approach your throne of grace with confidence. I'm going to ask you to keep your eyes closed for just a moment. And the moment we're entering into right now is a time that we have every week reserved for response. It's an opportunity for you to respond to who God is and what he's doing in your heart and your mind and your life in this moment. And so we leave it open to you. You know, if in this moment you would like to just stay seated in just an attitude of prayer, maybe is just a way to intimate, intimately connect with your Father, then you just stay seated. Maybe in reverence you want to get on your knees and pray, then you do that. Like Roselle said, we're here for an audience of one, not anyone else in this room, and We don't don't do things based on other people in this room. So you do what you need to do. If you would like for someone to pray with you or for you, there'll be a few of us available in the back. We would love to pray for you or with you. If you would like to stand and to worship and to sing, to celebrate this relationship that you have with your creator, if you want to celebrate knowing Christ, Then you stand and you sing and you celebrate and you do whatever your heart, whatever the Lord leads you to do. You raise your hands, you bow your head, you do whatever you feel led to. The communion table is open. If you want to make that a part of your worship response, when Jesus prayed this prayer, he prayed it in a place we often call the upper room where he had his final supper with his disciples is a part of this evening. And, and in this room, uh, Jesus has this, this meal where he breaks bread. He says, this is my body which is broken for you, representing his purpose for coming, that he was going to the cross. He said, this cup represents my blood which is poured out for you. And, and we now, for the last 2,000 years, Christians have taken the bread and taken the cup as a way to remember the great hour. Why Jesus came, the sacrifice he made. And if you'd like to make that part of your worship response today, you do that. We'll leave the time open for you. Open to make your heart open and available to the Lord to, to do what he wants to do. And maybe for the first time in your life, you quit looking to God to just give you something. And instead you look to connect with him not for what he can do or give to you, but just for who he is. Father, we celebrate you. Would you meet us where we are? Would you speak to us? Would you draw us in as we respond to who you are and all that you have done?